You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 248. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Annika Harrison and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Hello! Hey son, hey son! How are you guys? Ooh, very optimistic. Very yeah. optimistic. Really? I think I n- you know why that is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think yeah. everybody knows by now. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I think we deserved it. I mean, all the world deserved it. The the way this ha- year has gone so far with, with all this shit f- falling onto us and then yeah. Randy died, leaving all of us mourning and paying tributes to, to the great man. Then last week, the terrible seven magnitude earthquake in Turkey and, and Greece and the pandemic in full swing and all over the world. So we've been in dire need of some good news. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> and... This is it. Yeah. Joe Biden becoming the next president of the United States and then probably having a shot at at restoring normality in the world of politics all around the world. It all comes down to the Senate. Yes. Uh, and that we don't know until January. The two places in Georgia will go to a, what I what do they call it re-election? No re yeah, yeah. No, they have a special name for it. I don't remember. But they were going to do a new election there for the two positions. And uh, if they don't go to the Democrats, then I'm not sure too much will... Well, a lot of things will change, of course. But Biden will not have the power to do everything he has to do. But at least the the, the shitstorm will end. And that's yeah. one thing. Yeah, it, it will be like Obama 3.0 yeah. in a way. Yeah. Because he was in the same situation. But what I'm really concerned with is um, why I said that the normality might be possible to be restored on the world stage is because it's important. It's important how the diplomacy plays out all around the world. Oh, yes. And uh, some of the countries are really not <laughs> not in line. And again, I'm... Being a proud Hungarian citizen. Yeah, I heard there were some some noises <laughs> from Orban. Oh, God. You know that most of the, the news outlets are controlled by the government, so they are basically government media. And right after Trump said that he actually won and he started claiming that there was wide-scale uh, election fraud and, and, and all that weirdness that even Twitter um, flagged as <laughs> possible nonsense and all the other news outlets all over the country, well, the Hungarian state media decided to go with that. And they claimed that there were large-scale election fraud going on all over the U.S., which is especially interesting because there is we still don't know for sure that it had not happened in 2018 while we had our general elections. Yeah. There were very, Do you very... think you will find out? No, never, no. never. But no. there were very serious situations and there were very... Strange reportings, I remember. Let's just say strange things about our elections... Like four hours without knowing anything because allegedly the servers that were responsible for for putting together all the data, they broke down right on the day of the election. For four hours they were offline and then no one knows what happened, but no one could prove anything. So it was interesting to hear from them that, and, and obviously that the Trump administration was their favorite. Orban usually said that uh, he doesn't have a plan B. He plans only for the for the for Trump's win because Biden even called him out not too long ago. Actually, he actually called Orban a thug <laughs> at an event, uh, which he is. But I quote, you see what's happened in everything from Belarus to Poland to Hungary and the rise of totalitarian regimes in the world. This president, Mr. Trump, embraces all the thugs in the world. So that's... (laughs) Maybe not so diplomatic, even if it's true. Yeah, Yeah, it is not. But, uh, well, I'm I'm not looking forward to what's coming (laughs) next uh, from from between the US and Hungary. But uh, luckily, Hungary is, is just small chips for the US. So I don't think it... It will be very 
um, important, that, that kind of clash. Yeah. From our point of view, probably. But after, after a, a day or so, uh, Orman realized that it's not cool to stand alone in not congratulating the, the president-elect. <laughs> so it, he did it. Yeah. Eventually did happen, yeah. But going back to a little bit, I, I know we're a European podcast, but I think it's important that um, it is very good to see that Biden actually, Biden and Harris. Yeah. And I'd like to emphasize that as well. Mm. So Kamala Harris, not only the first ever uh, female vice president, but also the the first ever vice president of origins outside of the United States. Mm. So yeah. that's really cool. I'm I'm so happy for her too. And record turnout, record numbers of, of votes on each side, but it didn't really go without a glitch, did it? Like, I'm not talking about the counting of the votes taking forever, and there, there had been a lot of talk about how that would be the case because of the close to 100 million mail-in ballots. I'm talking about the country where 70 million people still voted for Donald fucking Trump. Oh, That's, yeah. It's Possible, impossible to understand. It is. I was actually like, are they crazy? Yeah. <laughs> They've seen four years of this. Yeah. And they say, yeah, yeah. we want more of that. Yeah. There shouldn't be a choice, you know, there shouldn't be a really in your mind. I mean, there shouldn't be an alternative to Joe Biden. Yeah, yeah. yeah. absolutely. <laughs> it, would be, it would be very interesting to, and I'm sure it's going to be done, to analyze and see how, who actually voted for Trump and how they looked, yeah. how they reasoned, because I think there's a wide variety of different kinds of people who do this. They're, they're the true believers. Yeah. They are the, the reluctant Trump voters. They are, there are the, the ones that are afraid of communism, which is totally groundless, but still, it would be interesting to see this yeah. divided. And I'm, and I'm pretty sure there's, there's a, a whole lot of cynicism as well. Like, uh, they just wanted the, the party to, to win. Yeah. It's like, after all, he was our presidential candidate. Yeah, but was that a good enough reason to vote for him? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. But there, there are serious problems that, that a competent yeah. and willing US leadership has to address. Yeah. But I'm sure that giving Biden the helm is no doubt a, a good move towards that. But, but it will be a, a hell of a job. Right. But uh, yeah, we should investigate that. We should f- understand what uh, motivates people to to cast a vote for someone, and uh, we should probably address uh, politicians as well with all the all the problems that right. they probably right. don't see. So Definitely. yeah, what can be done about that? Yeah, speaking of politicians, I have exciting news. Okay, uh, I was contacted by a member of the Swedish Parliament who asked me to take part in a one hour online session to talk about the importance of checking your sources in the context of democracy and politics and how everybody needs to do it and what we should how we as a society would make sure that everybody's better in doing that and i think i'm one out of four invited external people and the session is open but not mandatory for everyone but it's open for all swedish members of parliament mm-hmm. so so that's exciting definitely yeah that's really good such a good initiative yeah it's a chance to talk directly to our elected representatives about something that is really important and this will take place tomorrow as we record this because we're re- we're recording a little bit earlier this week and so on monday uh, I will have had <laughs> this session <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah it's going to be uh, very exciting if it were if we recorded later i could have told you how it went but i will come back to that on a, on a later episode mm-hmm. sounds really exciting mm-hmm. I, I can't wait to, to hear how it went mm. good 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 but i think um things that need to be put out there in terms of information is like uh, and discussions so we need to talk about stuff we need to discuss stuff with experts and people who know their shit just uh, referring back to the trump uh, way of doing things hmm. is not the way we wanted to, to do stuff but we're, we're getting used to having a, a whole lot of brilliant online lectures and events in the cyberspace right so those are available those those are there to to be seen by anyone but this is when following people on Twitter really pays off because Sander van der Linden, whom we interviewed on episode 180, he shared the link to an upcoming panel discussion as part of the Hay Festival Digital Winter Weekend. Do you know what the Hay Festival is? No. No. Okay, the, the, the Hay Festival is an annual literature festival uh, where readers and writers are brought together mm-hmm. in uh, Hay on Y. I hope I pronounce well the, the name of the place. It's in Wales. 
in the UK. And it's been going on for over 30 years now. And um, it's it's been praised immensely by even politicians. Like um, I think Bill Bill Clinton said that it's the Woodstock of, of the mind. It's a summer thing usually, but the digital winter weekend will happen between the 26th and the 29th of November. So it's all coming up, people, all online, all free of charge as well. And as part of this program, uh, to which we will link on the show notes, there will be a panel discussion with uh, Sander van der Linden and Stefanie Ullmann. She works for the project Giving Voice to Digital Democracies, the Social Impact of Artificially Intelligent Communications Technology. Quite a mouthful. Hmm. The conversation will be led by Nina Schick, who, as an author and broadcaster, specializes in how technology and artificial intelligence are reshaping society. And the title of the discussion is COVID-19, Digital Democracy and Fake News. So I'm pretty sure it will be a useful thing to listen to by skeptics. It will surely be an intriguing chat as well. And all you have to do to listen to it is follow the link we provide or just find heyfestival.com and search for any of their names or the words fake news. Um, You need to register, though, but no payment is required. So I do recommend everyone to go online and and, uh, follow that. Sounds really cool. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, now from something that sounds really cool and uplifting i actually have to bring the mood down a bit and i'm sorry for that oh no last week there was an attack in vienna in austria Mm -hmm. that you surely heard about yeah Yeah. and it was close to vienna's main synagogue several people above 20 got injured and uh, five people got killed including the attacker The exact circumstances are still being determined, but um, of course we don't want to record this show without saying that we're thinking of our friends and all people in Vienna at this dark hour. Of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, again, it's phenomenal how many unsubstantiated claims we've come across about all this. So people jumped right into conclusions about who did it, why they did it, and who were the people injured and and involved in any way. And it's just when the authorities say that we don't know for sure, we are still investigating the situation, then you don't just jump into conclusions and start spreading falsehoods. It's not the responsible way to react to this. No. And what I really like about, about how the uh, Austrian authorities handle the situation is that they immediately released a request for the public not to post not to publish anything of their own about this because it's it's gonna just lead to chaos yeah and apparently it didn't really work (laughs) i mean (laughs) people did post stuff anyway yeah and it's a tragic event and our heartfelt condolences to the families of the people who died or injured but um it's important to stick to the facts And uh, there are facts that relate to other stuff as well, like COVID. So before we go on from big news in the world and to other big news later on in the world, I have some uh, COVID news that are, for me personally, uh, rather important. Because one of my grown-up daughters came to stay with us about 10 days ago and she was feeling a little bit poorly, a little bit under the weather. And the long story short is that she then tested positive for covid So uh, she's still with us and uh, staying with us and she's almost symptom free by now. So so we're not very concerned. But uh, yes, I live in a household with the plague, quote unquote. Whoa. That's how quickly it gets close to you, right? Right. Yeah. Mm hmm. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting <laughs> if you say, look at it that way. I mean, my son, uh, he has tested negative. My wife is waiting for, she has no symptoms, but she's waiting for her results. And we, as, we are as careful as we can be. But of course, we're not going to kick out the poor COVID victim from our house. She's <laughs> here <laughs> and she's, she seems to be getting better. So it's fine. Yeah, I'm glad she's getting better. Yeah, I have not been tested myself because there is a limit on testing resources at the moment. Mm-hmm. So currently the recommendation is not to get a test if you don't have symptoms, even if you have a family member who is positive. Mm-hmm. But does that mean that you have to quarantine and uh, that means that you, you, you're not allowed to... To leave the house 
there, put it this way, I act as if I was contagious. So okay. I'm very, very careful. I spend most of my time in the house. If I have to go out, uh, I do wear a mask. But I don't have to do anything okay. because that, that's the Swedish model that everybody's talking about. Yeah, that's there, Sweden for you. <laughs> there are recommendations and most people are very sensible and follow the recommendations. So there are no, there's no fine, there's no laws yeah. and uh, it works. Uh, whatever people says, it seems to be working anyway. So, and there are harder recommendations now than there have been before. So you're not allowed to socialize with anybody who is not from your household. Uh, allowed. I said allowed again, but you're not recommended to do that. So you, you don't do it. <laughs> uh, you, uh, you, even if you're healthy and you have no reason to believe that you have been exposed, they say, don't go to the stores unless you absolutely have to. But you're free to go out and, and for a jog or for a walk or, or something. I think outdoors, it's not a big problem. Mm -hmm. And masks are not mandatory, but some people use them anyway. Uh, the sensible people, I do it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's, that's good. A German virologist actually said a thing that we should maybe all do is to behave like you yourself should behave as if you were infective everybody yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and you should also treat a person you meet and no matter where you meet the person as somebody from a risk group and if you do that if everybody would do that then uh, we would all be a bit um better i would guess <laughs> i think so yeah. yeah well i'm really hopeful that uh, you don't get it i mean we know of situations when uh, people living in the same household did not catch it from each other so it might be the case for you i'm really hoping that is the case mm -hmm. and even if so well <laughs> i hope you don't get any symptoms either yeah yeah i, I do so too yeah but in the meanwhile it's exciting times everyone <laughs> and mm -hmm. wear a mask people <laughs> wear a mask please do yeah be careful take care <laughs> yeah. yeah well ooh. but it's it's unbelievable how many people all around the world seem not to understand right. the, the basic rules and not to have that kind of responsible and sensible attitude <laughs> that you are talking about yeah, when you're, right. you're mentioning your fellow Swedes. Yeah. But uh, I can refer back to a friend of mine who works in Sweden, in Stockholm, actually, yeah. in an ICU mm -hmm. at a hospital. And um, she says that the situation is not as bad as it could be. And that there are more cases, but they, are, they don't seem to be as serious as they used to be so she says that it's it's a little bit above normal but it's it's controllable yeah. in the hospital yeah. so that's just one anecdotal evidence but still yeah right <laughs> yeah and here in the south of sweden the number of cases did go up over the last three four weeks Mm -hmm. But it seems like they now are turning down again. So we, we are mm -hmm. we are good. cautiously optimistic, but this will not go away anytime soon. We will live with this until there's a good vaccine out there. We have no idea how many cases we have. We have a growing number of cases. We are at the thousands of new cases per day. But um, we are definitely way above our testing capacities. Yeah, right. So it could be even 10 times more per day. Yeah. No one knows. Yeah, well, we are roughly at 20,000 a day mm -hmm. in Germany. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can, like. Yeah, I think the top was last week, like it was like 23,000 or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's like, as of course, it's, it varies from day to day, but it's roughly like average is pretty much 20,000 now. And uh, yeah, it's it's a bit scary because uh, mm -hmm. friends of, of mine, they're just like, yeah, and who are also working in schools, they're just like, yeah, now this class is closed and now this teacher has to stay home. And it's just like, it's weird times. It's weird. Why don't they close the schools? They don't close whole schools. That's just how what they do in Germany. I understand to some extent that it has a great effect on the economy. Because if people cannot go to work because their children are at home and they don't want to leave them at home alone, uh, I totally understand that. But for most people working, there are families where the parents work from home in a home office. And then the children have to go to school. I really don't get that. Yeah, it's 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 difficult. Mm. Yeah, but I think I think it's just hard because uh, we've never had such a connected um, world before. Um, and then a pandem pandemic hit, a global one. Yeah. So yeah. 
I think it's just like, yeah. <laughs> but Annika, I, I hear that you you are staying at home, yes. aren't you? Yes, <laughs> I am. Okay, yeah. good to know. And that has uh, a reason <laughs> that you two already know, so don't act like you don't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But my uh, the listeners might not know that. Um, and the thing is that I will take a little break from the show, around three weeks, um, but I can't really tell you guys uh, when yet. And um, connected to that, I also heard that um, it's actually really good to stick needles in your foot. Oh. And now you have to guess why. <laughs> <laughs> so what the heck is the connection? <laughs> <laughs> so the connection is... Are you going to stay home to get acupuncture? treatments or what <laughs> no the connection is or like uh, the explanation of all of that is that i thought we don't have enough skeptics in the world and my husband and i decided to produce a, a new skeptic yes <laughs> and the new skeptic will arrive at some point in december <laughs> mm, great yeah great <laughs> yeah so happy for you well that, that's good we've we've known for for some time but uh, again congratulations yes thank you yeah <laughs> I, don't take the acupuncture and i think everything will go well i think so too so what's what's this acupuncture thing <laughs> yeah it, it actually is, should um uh, like soften your cervix something like that because your the top of your foot is connected to your cervix somehow and are we sure that we want to, you want to do that I mean, <laughs> to soften it. Well, it has to. It has to be flexible in a way. But um, yeah, for a certain event, definitely. Yes, <laughs> that's coming soon. But up until then, I think it's quite useful <laughs> that it's not that flexible. Yeah, that's that's what the acupuncture is for. Like it, it only starts a few weeks before. Ah. But I will actually give a full report on the show when uh, everything's done. Not about the birth, <laughs> but about. Um, things I encountered all the pseudoscience during my time being pregnant and the birth yeah yeah good <laughs> mm. good that'll be interesting we should dissect that and even when the little new skeptic comes out and uh, the new life starts it doesn't stop there yeah you will occasionally pop online and start looking for answers about stuff and that's when the, the shit usually hits the fan yeah because the amount of bullshit out there it's it's amazing and and young mothers are specifically targeted by yeah. some of the scammers. Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, you can already see it if you go to to a drugstore and you can like you can buy some formula, some nappies, some bottles, and so on. Mm. In the same department, like literally hanging beside it, are amber beads mm. <laughs> oh, to no. put on your baby. No, no, no. <laughs> Just like for pain, pain relief, right? <laughs> uh, it's so cynical because especially young parents are. Of course, very excited about what's going to happen and uh, very anxious to do the right thing and everything yeah. to help your baby, blah, blah, blah. And, you're, and especially if you're young, you're, you're inexperienced and you may fall for a lot of these things. And, and it's, yeah, as I said, very cynical. I think that the anxiety that you mentioned is key, that uh, you lack the experience, but you do, do want to do it right. And you want to make, make it sure in every possible way that you, make, you do it right. Yeah. And that's how you go wrong. <laughs> and, yeah. and that's also like why anti-vax is such a big problem problem in with young parents yes yeah no one wants to harm their children i mean there are there probably are people out there who want to ch harm their children but then that, that is pathological psychopathological thing yeah <laughs> i don't think do. that's a big demographic no yes i don't think so either i think it's minority luckily enough so i think we can establish that everyone who who makes stu stupid decisions about their children and how they they treat them and how they br bring them up comes out with it stems from good in intentions it's yeah and that's why it's so hard to counter it ah, yeah yeah. Right. yeah yeah what if the baby's really gullible what will you do uh, <laughs> every baby's gullible they, they won't they comes won't. out and say i want acupuncture give me the homeopathy now i think no baby wants acupuncture like for real that's true like which baby would like acupuncture <laughs> like a masochistic baby <laughs> they like soft things yeah they don't like needles <laughs> <laughs> Okay. All they want is milk, nipples, <laughs> warm clothing, and a lot of opportunities to sleep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and something to poo in. <laughs> that's, that's, that's all. I'm, I'm speaking as if I were the expert here on what children need. Mansplaining it to us, yeah. 
Never mind, never mind. So before I say anything silly, I think on this very positive note on Onika soon giving birth to um, potential new skeptic, <laughs> I think we should move on to the regular segments of this show. And the first, as usual, will be when we find out what happened this week in skepticism. Yeah, so this week there are a lot of historically important dates. So I had a hard time to actually decide what to take. For example, on the 11th of November, uh, First World War ended. That was good news. But in, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. in the end, I decided on, on another date, which is not in such a good mood as our welcoming <laughs> segment. Because on the 9th to the 10th of November 1938, the Night of Broken Glass, in German it's also called Kristallnacht, happened. Oof. And this is a euphemism, of course, for the November pogroms against um, Jews carried out by the Sturmabteilung, the SA paramilitary groups and um, civilians. And I say it's a new, if you, I know it's a term that is used in, in English a lot, Night of Broken Glass, but that's why I really want to say this is a euphemism and we should say November pogroms because yeah. Night of Broken Glass doesn't sound that bad. Mm. And um, it is pretty bad uh, because at this, in this night, Jewish homes, hospitals and schools were ransacked and demolished. 267 synagogues got destroyed in Germany, Austria and the Sudetenland, which is um, in today's Czech Republic. Over 7,000 businesses got destroyed. 30,000 Jewish men were arrested and sent to concentration camps on this night alone. Estimated hundreds of deaths. And it sent shockwaves around the world because it was very um, well reported at that day. It's also seen as a prelude to the murder of 6 million Jews during the Holocaust. So the final solution and the um, whole Holocaust. And yeah, something that is also quite recent is because that's, as you already know, we are recording on the 8th. So that's tomorrow. And tomorrow it was actually said that there is a group called Querdenker in Germany. And they chose exactly this anniversary date, so this day of mourning and, and remembrance, to plan events to go to schools and to talk to school children about masks and denying COVID and um, why COVID is a lie. And teachers and parents have been wa warned to be careful and to, to keep um, on the lookout. And this is, of course, something where most Germans will say like, wow, which better day to choose? Like, how dare you? Yeah, yeah, it's not a coincidence, I'm sure. No, definitely not. No, it's not. No. It's not. It's, it's a message. It's like hmm. the day is so bad in German, like uh, inofficial culture, so to say, that the Berlin, like the Berlin Wall fell on the 9th of November too. Mm -hmm. That's But we don't celebrate that on this day because it is also the no day of uh, the night of the november program so it, yeah. it would never be celebrated on this day and now you might ask like yeah that's very important and it's very important for germans and but why is that skeptical <laughs> hard to believe but there are not only covid deniers also holocaust deniers exist a plenty yeah. and the false ideas they have can vary some think that um, the final solution was aimed only at deporting jews and not at actually killing them or that there were no extermination camps or gas chambers um, or that the numbers of jews murdered would be much lower like um, 600,000 instead of 6 million and that's a serious problem because it's um, it's associated with racism, with anti-Semitism, and it's not true. <laughs> it's like, right, right. Yeah. and we've mentioned this before that uh, as time now goes by, yeah. fewer and fewer people are still alive who can have first-hand mm -hmm. witness about this, who can tell how it really was, yeah. and that increases the risk that you can get these this misinformation can get yeah. or out there. Yeah, and it's it's also like today's recent politics also play into that at times. Mm. So if if people are against um, a certain agenda or a certain state, then they will also fall into that. Interestingly enough, it is illegal, like actually against the law in several European countries and Israel. And what they, what the Holocaust deniers mostly claim is that the Holocaust is either an exaggeration or a hoax orchestrated by Jews to advance Jewish interest. And there you can see it's absolutely anti-Semitic, absolutely racist and an absolute bonkers conspiracy theory. Yeah. What following this uh, Holocaust denying 
scheme uh, can lead to is that in countries where it's illegal, you can actually be convicted for months or even years for it mm -hmm. if you spout that in public. And now, of course, we should also say as, as skeptics, like, how can we counter these sentences or these statements? Well, the Holocaust was well documented. We have facts and evidence that can prove that it's not a, definitely not a hoax. And it also wasn't only documented by one side, it was documented by Nazis and by the Allied forces. We have written documents, eyewitness testimonies, photographs. We have the camps themselves, the buildings. We have demographics of the population. It's like if, if six million people, st people didn't die, where did they like fly to? It's just like, because they're not in the- Aliens. Yeah, if they're not in the statistics, anymore then like where did they go if they didn't get murdered and um it would be a lot of things you would have to change if you if you look at all the evidence we have and um interestingly enough other genocides are also still um being denied around the world there are uh, heaps of of genocides that are either um controversially discussed or even denied and yeah for us as skeptics that just means it's important to be on the side of evidence and to look at the evidence that we have yeah. and to remember uh what happened in 1938, but also to not forget what is still happening in the world today. Mm. Onika, you're, you're a um, history teacher. Yes. So in Germany, is critical thinking in any way part of the curriculum for high school students? I would say not officially. Mm -hmm. It is said you have to, for example, in history, you should um, teach students in a way that they can behave in a society so that they question things that they just don't especially in germany like they they in history they want to um have students that are not, not like yes i will do that and they just uh, that just follow you but they want to um, them to think for themselves but there's is this is just like a, a thing that flows within the whole curriculum and it's not mm -hmm. like a, a topic in the curriculum to to start critical thinking yeah, yeah. at least not in, in history or in english I would need to ask for like my colleague who teaches ethics or a colleague who teaches philosophy mm -hmm. if they do that or science. <laughs> but as if I remember correctly, it's not officially in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. In the national curriculum, at least in the science curriculum or different subjects within that, it is written here in Hungary that, that the students should be able to critically approach uh, pieces of evidence and uh, make arguments for and against a certain case and stuff like that. But the means to do that, to achieve that, are not provided. I think it's the same here in Sweden. Yeah. It's like they, they say something like you you should um, teach them to think for themselves, which pretty much, me much means critical thinking. But yeah, they don't give you material for it. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Or time. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, that's too bad. And this is this is what leads to things like batshit crazy people yeah. who deny even the Holocaust, which is very well documented. Okay, thank you very much, Annika. Thank you for that. Not too uplifting, mm, but sorry. very eye-opening yeah. <laughs> piece, piece of uh, history. Important, yeah. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you. And that means that we are moving on to the next segment. And I'm wondering if Pontus, you have something to poke the Pope for. You bet. It's unfortunately not at all unexpected uh, to hear about sex abuse by Catholic priests and bishops. It's so common that I often don't even mention it here on the show because it's not even news. And that's tragic in itself. Also, certain countries seems to be worse than others. Mm -hmm. For instance, Poland has had its share of scandals. But here's a recent update on a story, especially from Poland. And it's not just a priest or even a bishop we're talking about, but it is a cardinal, even if it is a retired cardinal. Cardinal Henrik Gulbinovich, or so, <laughs> of, <laughs> something along those lines. He is from Wrocław which I think I know how to pronounce because we've all been there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, he has been the subject of inquiries into accusations, which were then dismissed by local authorities due to statute of limitation issues or rules. But still, the Vatican has pressed on uh, heroes, as we know they are. And that is despite the fact that Gulbinovich has uh, long been a prominent figure in Poland. He became the Archbishop of 
of Wrocław in 1975, so that's quite a while ago. He was instrumental in hiding funds uh, for the local branch of solidarity when that when there was a martial law about that so so i mean he helped solidarity i should say and that was in 1981 in uh, 1985 uh, then pope uh, john paul ii made him a cardinal and after the fall of communism he was honored by the new polish government but now there are new things coming up, new information that's saying that one, Gulbinovich was a secret informer to SB, which was the communist secret police in Poland in, uh, at the time, and two, that he had a history of abusive sexual relations throughout his life. He was uh, a gay, apparently, and that's totally fine to be gay, of course, but you can't be abusive. Uh, <laughs> Uh, we uh, we do believe in consent uh, here at the ESP. We do believe in it. Yes. <laughs> we do believe in that. Yes. <laughs> uh, we advocate for it even. So. Sounds weird. <laughs> <laughs> so. I mean, I agree, but it still sounds weird. <laughs> <clears throat> Sorry. So the Catholic Church, prompted by Francis' uh, document called Vos Estis Lux Mundi, has looked into this case and uh, they have now banned the retired ca cardinal from public ministry from public appearances and for from the use of the bishop's insignia and he's also not to be buried in the archdiocesan cathedral after his death so well done the vatican right or well done the catholic church setting the record straight mm -hmm. however this line from the news item really stood out to me and i quote from the, the news item here when the vatican embassy published a statement on golbunovich on friday the cardinal was informed about the decision but the archdiocese said his state of health meant that he was probably unaware of what had just happened so they waited until he was so old and demented that he didn't even know that he had been banned. He's probably bedridden somewhere. Uh, so that's what the Vatican could do about this. After all these years, all these investigations, they sent a sternly worded letter to a man who was in no shape to even understand what they told him. So a letter. Well, yeah. well done, everybody. That's the way the Catholic Church handles stuff like this. Yeah, and now they and can. That's outrageous. Yeah, and now they can take the the credit for for being. You know, we we do punish. We've the taken people. care of it. Yeah, we've taken care yeah. of it. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's it. Jesus Christ. That's right. Jesus Christ. <gasps> In the name of his. Mm. All that. <laughs> All right. Okay. Thank you very much, Pontus. Thank you. And that means that we are moving on to discussing the news. Oh, All right. Well, let's start with uh, what's new on the front line about the pandemic. I know it's not the most uplifting topic, but it doesn't really come as a surprise that it hasn't stopped yet. Um, in fact, it's growing at an accelerating rate with around 600,000 new cases every day uh, around the globe at the time of the, uh, recording. There are currently four European countries with case counts over a million. But now it's Italy's turn, it seems, to join the club. Mm. And by the time this goes out, it will already have happened. Some countries are facing serious limitations regarding their testing and hospital care capacities. So we need to be bracing for worse than it is now at the moment. Uh, at least this is what it's, it looks like. Especially with the winter coming and that brings about the influenza as well and all that. But people are so fed up and so seriously fed with all the nonsense coming from COVID deniers, anti-mask activists and all kinds of weird influencers, that compliance rates are in a freefall in some countries. Uh, obviously, as Pontus mentioned earlier, luckily uh, countries like Sweden seems to be an exception to that, uh, with, with a very high compliance rate, um, even only with recommendations uh, circulating. But some, in some countries, there need to be very serious measures and, and lockdown situations even. Germany seems to be among those countries where it became necessary. And with the new lockdown in place, only for a few days, uh, which, mind you, was necessary because of the lack of compliance in the first place, which 
obviously led to a record high number of daily new cases last week. And as a result, an alarmingly large protest in the, um, the eastern Germany, uh, German city of Leipzig was held last Saturday. There were some 20,000 people marching on the streets, most of them not even wearing masks at all. Mm. So authorities decide to break the whole demonstration up. Obviously, that heated the situation. It escalated the situation because that was the message. The message that it sent to the demonstrators themselves is that the authorities are being in the service of, of an authoritarian regime now and, and this is a dictatorship <laughs> and all that weird shit. So when things started to escalate, People uh, were throwing fireworks and using several types of projectiles against the police. And some of the protesters were in their 60s and even 70s, which really makes you think how much they must have been influenced by all the, the falsehoods that are spreading on the internet, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. And I'm afraid that won't be the last of this kind of violent protests that we see in the near future. And I don't think it's entirely the people's and their idiotic influences' fault. I don't know about your countries, but some are doing a very shitty job at mitigating both the spreading of the virus and the economic outcome of the countermeasures. Some of that we have touched on earlier at the beginning of the show. <laughs> but some countries do everything they, they can to stop the virus or, or make sure that the when a vaccine is readily available, its effectiveness is not hindered by controllable factors. This is the very consideration that triggered the decision by the Danish government that 17 million minks would be slaughtered. So what's the connection? <laughs> why, <laughs> why minks? Why 17 million minks? Yeah. Well, there are massive mink farms in Denmark and they send most of their fur to countries like China. And it seems like these fur creatures are massive spreaders of the more common version of the virus, but also a new form that has infected 12 people so far. So the connection is that they want to stop the spread of this new mutated form of SARS-CoV-2 that seems to be able to spread to humans, and there are fears that it could affect the immune system in a way that the future vaccines might prove ineffective if someone had been infected with this type of the virus. The WHO says there's not enough evidence to conclude what the effects of this could be, but the Danish authorities have already initiated the call. All right, so that's the situation. But since that decision, uh, five other countries have reported the presence of SARS-CoV-2 on mink farms, even though uh, they are not as as large because Denmark is the largest exporter of minks. But yeah, it's despite the fact that uh, even things like uh, the UK banning Danes from entering the country happened and it was too late it seems. And now the contact tracing has to be done to determine uh, why these little creatures seem to be so highly effective in, in transmitting the virus. So, uh, tough times that are only made worse by all the nonsense that keeps circulating. So, we'll hear about some of those as well today. Yeah, and from something that is a bit sad for the minks, <laughs> um, I would like to say something or tell you guys something really cool. And that is that MedWatch received the Bundespreis Verbraucherschutz uh, of this year. That means they received or they win the Federal um, Consumer Protection Award of Germany. Ah. Mm-hmm. And MedWatch is an independent platform researching dangerous and fraudulent um, healers or like healing prophecies, healing promises. Um, they're reporting and informing on their website. And... They also received last year's Carl Sagan Prize of the GWUP. So they are they already well known within the German skeptic scene. But um, yeah, they really deserve this this prize. Mm-hmm. Okay, nice. I think we've heard about them, haven't we? I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure we mentioned them before. Yes, I think so too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, they do ring a bell. Mm. The name. Okay, good. All right, another topic then, um, uh, not COVID, not medical. Um, I don't know how much we've talked about it, but there is a subculture out there uh, that insists that normal laws do not apply to them, uh, that it's only a fiction and it's all a conspiracy and you don't have to follow the law. One branch is called the Freeman on the Land movement, which is all about if you don't opt into the society as such, often 
strangely enough, by not spelling your name the way it's spelled on your birth certificate and things like that, <laughs> then you are no, not a subject to of the country that you live in and no law supply. So what I'm going to talk about is not the same, but it's sort of a similar story with people in the UK. Uh, we could, maybe we could call this pseudo law. I, I, I don't know. But this is <laughs> people in the UK referring to an article number 61 in the Magna Carta from 1215. So it's been a while. <laughs> mm -hmm. They mean that this article 61 gives them a right to reject the government if needed and therefore... Drum roll, please. They do not need to wear a face mask. So <laughs> that is very interesting that that was foreseen by the people back in the 1200s. <laughs> so full fact. Much ado about nothing. Yeah, uh, it's silly, but it's, it's not a big deal. No, no it's the, I mean, wearing a mask. Yes, yes. But the whole <laughs> idea is, is silly. Uh, also, the, yeah. this law thing. So yeah. Fortunately, we have fullfact.org who look into dubious claims like this and they've actually spent some time looking into the actual Magna Carta and what it says and, and, and things. And first of all, the Magna Carta as such is not the law in the UK. Yeah. So there you go. That, that's the first thing you should know. <laughs> the second thing you should well, know... Well, it was in 1215, but it, that was a long time ago. Right. Yeah. We didn't have we didn't have the uh, SARS-CoV-2 <laughs> at the, the time, so I don't know. They didn't even have the bubonic plague. No, no that's <laughs> yeah. right. Probably yeah, that's right. Till later, yes. So uh, then we look at the Article 61, the famous article. Uh, it doesn't give... Uh, everyone a license just to ignore the government whenever they want to. Mm -hmm. the, the, the article specifically gives 25 barons at the time the right to demand restitution from the monarch if the monarch violates their obligations. Even to the point that they are actually, according to this article, they can go with uh, violence take what they are due from the monarch. But, of course, you can imagine that that uh, article didn't stay very long in the Magna Carta, so it's only in the first version and then it was abandoned. And there were many versions of the Magna Carta. And, um, as I said, this 60, Article 61 was only in the first one, never in the later versions. If we still take it seriously, it's only barons who are allowed not to wear a mask. <laughs> exactly. However, <laughs> what, what, no, I, I, there is a little bit more to it because there is a clause or a second paragraph or something in this article that says that any man is allowed to support these barons. Mm -hmm. And in these nut jobs, they are looking at this any man and then they stop reading and say, any man can do whatever they want to. That's, that's not true, but that's how they read it. Then there are actually a couple of articles from the Magna Carta that still is part of UK law. But it's only four articles out of the, I think, the original 63 or 65 or something. And Article 61 is, of course, not among them. So it, it, it is total nonsense. If you hear people referring to that the Magna Carta gives you a right to ignore instructions from the government, uh, it's total nonsense. Don't, don't trust that. Mm. <laughs> and of course, you can read the, the more scientific analysis at fullfact.org and we will, we will link to that. Yeah, and I would like to tell you more about uh, total nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> Good. <laughs> Because apparently chiropractors don't like informed consent in their chiropractic practices. <laughs> As we all know, informed consent is absolutely important for medicine. And at the same time, it seems to be nearly impossible with so-called alternative medicine. Nowadays, the patient autonomy is really paramount in clinical environments in medicine because there's also a duty of care and it's an ethical imperative, as we would all agree to mm -hmm. tell your patient what's happened. Yes. Um, so Edzard Ernst asked the question, if it's so ethically imper like imperative, why do chiropractors don't abide by it? Because he said there's little research, but what he found is that they don't do it. And um, to give an answer to that, I would like to quote Edzard Ernst directly because he wrote a very good um, fictional conversation between a chiropractor and a patient with neck pain. I would just like to read that out to you. Yeah. So, what's your diagnosis? Asks the patient. You are suffering from acute neck pain. Thanks. That was clear to me. What do you suggest I do? I will perform a manipulation of your neck, if you agree. Why would that help? 
It can realign the vertebrae that are out of place, simply put. And my pain will disappear? Sometimes it does, yes. But will it disappear quicker than without manipulation? Some of the evidence says so. Okay, but what does the most reliable evidence say? <laughs> it's not entirely clear-cut. Hmm, that doesn't sound too good. So, tell me, are there any risks? About 50% of patients suffer from minor to moderate pain for two to three days afterwards. That's a lot. Anything else? In some cases, neck manipulation was followed by a stroke. Ooh, that's bad. How often has this happened? We know of about 500 such cases. Heavens! Now, do you want the treatment or not? How much will you charge? Only 60 euros per session. You mean I have to come back for more each time risking a stroke? Well, you don't have to. Thanks for the info. I am off. Cheerio. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> One thing that I, I'm I'm pretty sure is occasionally at least um, keeps people from from leaving the office of a chiropractor or a homeopath or something like that is that um, first of all it's embarrassing to stand up and and say that. <laughs> Come on, you're a fraud. I'm leaving. <laughs> that requires a certain level of confrontational yeah. attitude, which a lot of people don't have. And the other thing is that, especially if someone is a doctor, most people will not question the authority of a doctor in a clinic. Yeah. So in a situation when you're the patient, he or she is the doctor, you will not necessarily question the authority. And... Uh, that leads to things like, yeah, yeah, okay, you know what, I'll just go go with it. <laughs> yeah, and it helped my friend, so I'll just do it too. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> and sometimes when I hear, I, I see videos of what chiropractors do to patients. Or even to babies. I would yeah, not submit to anything like that. Never, ever. Yeah. It, it looks like it looks like torture when, when you see chiropractors with babies. It's just like... <laughs> yeah. But even, even with adults, it looks dangerous. It's obvious that it holds some risk of getting injured. What i very curious about uh, is I heard a few weeks ago again about chiropractic for horses. So how the hell does that work? <laughs> but we will have to do more investigation. I don't know. To yeah, we'll have to invite, use... invite Stephanie Handel again for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All yeah. right, yeah. <laughs> Oh, she can she can practice uh, practice that probably. No, no, no. <laughs> on on Anders' horse, yes. <laughs> Anders' horse, yeah. All, all my horses uh, can be subjected to that. Um, <laughs> and homeopathy. <laughs> and homeopathy as well. Good. You know what? Other interesting things we don't often hear from Switzerland and um, stuff from coming from Switzerland. But this time, uh, something made the news in several different outlets. And that is how a um, couple of grandmothers, like elderly women, 459 of them, actually, hmm. sued the Swiss government over how they failed to take the necessary measures to combat climate change. Wow. Go grandmothers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a 150-year page-long complaint document. And they listed a couple of demands. They say that what the government does is basically nothing and just reducing carbon dioxide emissions uh, by 20% by 2020 compared with 1990 levels. It's basically nothing and it doesn't do anything. And they list all the, um, the, the things that carbon dioxide levels and an elevated heat, uh, especially during the summer times, can lead to in women of that age and they list the evidence that uh, that it can lead to health related problems and even death to elderly women mm -hmm. and this is the basis of their complaints and they say if the, the government fails to to address the situation and this uh, situation properly, then they will go to the European Court of Human Rights. Interesting. But I have to remind everyone that it's not the first time that this happened. The Grantham Institute and the London School of Economics did a report on all the, the cases, the law cases, that have happened since 1990 related to climate change. That was last year, in the summer last year. There have been uh, 1,300 legal actions wow. uh, in 28 countries against governments and different firms uh, on the basis of health-related issues, economic issues, and um, even children. 
And it was not too long ago, actually in April this year, that even the United States Federal District Court in Oregon ruled in favor of a group of basically children between the age of of 8 and 19 who brought a case against the US government and the fossil fuel industry. So that's pretty cool. And I suppose there will be a couple of new cases like that coming up in the next couple of years. And I do welcome all that. Uh, well done, grannies, <laughs> in Switzerland. And I really hope that the Swiss government takes it seriously. And not only the Swiss government, because, well, frankly, there are co- governments doing a much worse job than, than they do. So uh, people, take action. Don't take action about silly, stupid ideas like uh, not wearing face masks. Hmm. Uh, take action about stuff that actually matters uh, and makes some sense scientifically speaking as well and uh, it ensures our future just like wearing a fucking mask and surviving this pandemic good so speaking of pandemic again we have to to go back to that a little bit but maybe in a different way the pandemic we're in is changing the world in many ways as we can see but it's not just about practical things like wearing a mask or mm. economics or or even some of us losing friends and loved ones or, or being scared for doing so there is a new study that shows that it also changes our whole view of politicians and other authorities like experts in medicine and scientists and economics and uh, also in uh, how you look at populist parties. It's a, it's a bit complex, this study, and it's not without its problems, uh, but I will try to summarize the findings a little bit, and then we will link to it uh, so that you can study it more if you're interested. It, the, the survey took place in Italy, Spain, Germany, and the Netherlands, so it's an international collaboration between different universities. And this is not a study over time, but it illustrates how you get different replies depending if you prime the interviewee before asking the actual questions. And I'll explain what that means. So if you first ask if the interviewed person has directly been affected by the, from a health point of view, then what you find is that the trust in politicians are lower in the later questions than if you don't ask about the health situation first. The trust in EU politicians goes down even more than the trust in local politicians. So that, that's one example of what this study found. Then another example is that if you prime the person on economic issues first, then you see the same phenomena, but even, even more. So if you remind people that economics are going badly, then you trust your politicians even less when you ask the other questions about the politicians then if you prime the subject or um or if you make it out like a conflict you you allude to that there's a conflict between yourself and some invisible enemy of sorts uh, and invisible enemy is their words in the in the in the study then the trust in politicians and, and in eu as a whole goes down even more much much more actually however if you ask these questions, trust in scientists and experts actually goes up. Uh, as as the, the trust in politicians goes down, the trust in scientists and experts goes up. So that, that's positive in a way, I guess. And also, late, uh, lastly, the, the also positively, and I was surprised to read this, trust in populist parties also goes down when you ask these questions, mm. which... Then the authors connect to the fact that several populist parties seem to have lost support over the last year or so. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's actually true, but I looked into very quickly into the Swedish situation. And we have one big populist party, the Sweden Democrats, and they have actually lost three percentage points over the year. So maybe they are on to something. I don't know. But... There are some problems with this paper. First of all, it's an online survey, and that that has all kinds of problems with self-selected reply rates and and, and, and other things. And also to to really make sure that you find a a representative uh, population to, to survey. Also, it compares different kinds of priming with not priming people, 
for these questions, but not actually how things have changed over time, even though they claim so in their summary that now things are changing because of this and this. But actually they're only comparing one point in time and they are asking either they, you prime them by reminding them that the economy is bad or that the health situation is bad first, or you don't. But it actually doesn't say what has changed over the last two years. And, and then the last thing I can see is a problem that even if there is a change over time, the surveys say nothing if, about if it will stick or not. But still, it's interesting. It's looking into the psychology of the pandemic and how, yeah. it, how it affects everybody in that respect. Resonates very well with the interview we did last week with yeah. uh, Stephen Lewandowski. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's really interesting. <laughs> I got a little update for you on clinical trials of homeopathy. <laughs> Not again. <laughs> Why do we keep doing that? Annika, please yeah. tell me. I, I have no idea. <laughs> Sugar pills. Well, it's because because it's important because people still believe in homeopathy. And I took this uh, from Edzard Ernst's blog, uh, as we sometimes do. <laughs> Thank you, Edzard Ernst. Yep. <laughs> he is an expert in homeopathy. so yeah. it, He is. He is. And yeah, in this, uh, in this clinical trial, they compared findings between 2014, or in the update, between 2014 and 2019. And they say there's an interesting shift in the evidence base. Um, the positive trials go from 41 to 45 percent, so up. The negative go from 5 to 4 percent. The inconclusive trials go from 54 to 51 percent. What Edzard Ernst says is clinical trials only test an hypothesis. So the experimental therapy generates results that are not different from those in the control group. <laughs> so then you have to either reject um, it, which means it's better than placebo, or you accept it, then you say, okay, it works like placebo. You can't stay ambivalent, says Edzard Ernst. And that's what exactly what this clinical tri trial on homeopathy tried to do. So they didn't make up their mind if it's better than placebo or not. They just stayed like, yeah, either or. <laughs> yeah. He also says these inconclusive trials, so the 54 to 51%, they are an invention pretty much by homeopaths and other people who like to be wishful thinkers. And what um, Edzard Ernst sums it up as is, what does it actually show? The majority of evidence on homeopathy is negative. What a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> right. But do I, maybe I misunderstood, but I'm thinking here that since homeopathy, in effect, actually is placebo, you can never expect homeopathy, the homeopathy group, to do worse than the placebo. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> what bothers me about this thing is that it's not an actual study. It's not an actual systematic review that usually assesses the quality of the study as well. This is only the outcome. Right. And when you put it together with the quality of the study, what happens is that the positive outcomes basically disappear. So the more strict the protocol is, usually the more likely it is the outcome to be negative. And uh, this is not assessed. And the reason why it's not assessed is because it's done by the Homeopathy Research Institute. <laughs> yeah. So they are they massively biased. So, fuck off. <laughs> <It's not. laughs> and I, say, I just remind people, and when we say bad quality of a study, we don't mean that we don't agree with it. We mean exactly. that it doesn't follow strict protocols. It's not double-blinded or it's not selected properly. There are objective measures you can take to see if a study is of high quality or not it's not just something yeah. that we can just pick and choose the ones we want that's right that's right there are protocols for a reason yes <laughs> so yeah. yeah it's just a shitty thing and they leave the five to four percent negative results in for good measure i mean yeah <laughs> oh yeah like they can say that yeah we found a couple of negative studies as well so we are not biased at all. And the hell you aren't, yeah. Okay, thank you very much. And that means 
that I think we've covered all the news items that we have found interesting enough to share with you, dear listeners. And we are moving on to whether we have a really wrong or really right this week. I think we will skip it this week. It's already a long episode and I had a couple okay. I had a couple of candidates, but I didn't think they were good enough. So let's save <laughs> that for maybe another week. <laughs> Well, let's just mention that if it's it would have been a really wrong, then they wouldn't have been good enough anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. Okay. Uh, so we are concluding the show without a really wrong or really right, but we will not do it without a quote. Uh, short and sweet from the Russian-born American science fiction writer that we all know and love, mm. Isaac Asimov. Yeah. And he said, the saddest aspect of life right now is that science gathers knowledge faster than society gathers wisdom. Ooh. So true. <laughs> so fucking true. Yeah. yeah. But I'm sure he didn't mean that we should stop gather science knowledge. Obviously not. Obviously no. not. We should well, get... We should start gathering find wisdom. Find ways to gather <laughs> wisdom. Yeah. And... Every time I come across this quote, uh, it makes me think, what would he think of this quote of his in our current times? I don't know. <laughs> he would kick society's butt. <laughs> it's acceleratingly true. Yeah. So it becomes more and more true by the day. Yeah. It's like a, and this is what we, we are up against. It's like <laughs> a pair of scissors. It's just opening wider and wider and wider <laughs> between yeah, that's right. science that's right. and society. So we will do keep doing our best to give our listeners ammunition for their everyday fights against pseudoscience and nonsense. And if our listeners want to give us any kind of suggestions or recommendations, then it's uh, you're more than welcome to do so. And... Uh, Please get in touch and you will hear at the end of the show how you can do that. But for now, this is the end of the show. And I'd like to thank both of you, Annika and Pontus, for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Many thanks to our listeners who keep tuning in. Please keep doing so and spread the word. And until next week, goodbye. Tschüss. Hello. Hello. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Shrub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu, and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe And that's just the segment <laughs> to your part, Pontus. So good. <laughs> I will try to find <laughs> yeah, yeah, the yeah, way yeah, to add to it together. <laughs> like oh my COVID. fucking god! You know, if you want me to record any random words <laughs> just to help out, just contact me later, and I will say whatever. Yeah, you know <laughs> the, the most. Yeah, let's uh, do a, a stock recording stock of uh, the most yeah, frequently right. used words we already from each have of a couple us, of can, absolutely from me and definitely from from uh, Annika you can use them whenever you want and actually from me yeah. <laughs> yeah. Eiffel Tower now you have also this <laughs> we never say this but <laughs> right yeah please yeah I can I can definitely use it of course yeah <laughs>